page 43 in your pew Bibles. Genesis 50, starting with verse 14. After burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, Please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received this message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, Don't be afraid of me. Am I a god that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. The word of the Lord. Good morning. As we begin this new series uh, that we're calling The Forgiving Fair, uh, we've encouraged you to prepare by reading Genesis chapters 30 to 50. And hopefully this past week, some of you were able to find some time to get into that section of the Bible and enter into the stories. Some of us, we're familiar with these stories, but it's good to get refreshed on them and look at them with fresh eyes. And so as some of you have done this this past week, Uh, you would learn that Genesis 30 to 50 is about the story of Joseph. Uh, But larger than that, uh, Joseph comes in a bit later, but it's really about this whole family. This whole family of which Joseph is a part. This story is kind of the ultimate story of betrayal and forgiveness. If you want to learn about forgiveness, this is a great place to look in the Bible. There is jealousy that is born between these brothers. There's 12 of them. And it builds into the brothers plotting against Joseph. And then channeling, kind of like an older brother, Cain, they throw Joseph into a well to die. They're that enraged against him. Before then changing their minds to say, okay, well, what if we just sell him as a slave? This will be a way to deal with our problem. And so that is the offense that occurs between Joseph and his brothers. But I would encourage you to read up on that story. The story that zooms in on Joseph is set within the second part of the book of Genesis, which tells the story of the generations of one family, from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah to Jacob and Rachel, which culminates in the story of Joseph Particularly this scene that we just heard read to us, where Joseph chooses to forgive his brothers. 
There's a lot that could be seen as you look at the structure of Genesis and this big story that's being told. Forgiveness is set within the narrative of Genesis as this ultimate end. And for each of us, as we reflect on our own lives, we can see how forgiveness always seems to be this essential scene that defines our stories. We know that forgiveness is of ultimate importance. But whether we articulate it or not, we also know that forgiving is very costly. Forgiveness is very costly. Have you ever thought about that? That forgiveness is like paying a cost. Well, it might be easier for us to start on the other side of this transaction. That offenses or injustices against us are like a transaction that has created a debt. Do we ever talk like this? Do we ever think like this? That offenses against us create this kind of a debt in our relationship. We would be familiar with this from the notion, with this notion from the prayer that Jesus taught us. One common translation of this prayer includes the line, Forgive us this day our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And so there are other translations we'd be familiar with, but this is the common one, and it reveals this kind of mentality. This is less a translation and more an analogy of how we understand sins or transgressions against us that they are like debts. It has created a sense of debt in the relationship. Similarly, in our passage today, we can see this kind of economic language. In chapter 50, verse 15, we're all there in our pew Bibles or devices. The brothers are at the mercy of their victim, Joseph, and fearing the kind of revenge that will be enacted upon them. What do they say? Now, Joseph will show his anger and pay us back. Pay us back. This kind of economic transaction language. This is the kind of mindset that we tend to walk around with. Constantly accounting for what others owe us. Right? Based on past transactions that have occurred in our relationships. And for that reason, I, there is a debt and I am owed. Of course, we don't consciously assign dollar tags as we go around and we envision, oh yeah, that's the cost that this person has accrued because of their offenses. We don't literally assign dollar tags. But it's like we use a paradigm of economics to think of how a withdrawal has been made in this relationship and that there needs to be payment in order to balance the books between us. And we'll often call this balancing act Justice. Justice must be served. The books need to be balanced. The debt needs to be settled. And I think one image that depicts this mentality very clearly is a balancing scale. A weigh scale, a balance scale. It's been a while since you've seen one of those, I'm sure. 
But of course, as human beings, the way we cause offense and harm to one another abound. There's no end to the ways that we do this. We are adept in racking up debt in this way, in our relationships. But on the other side, we are also well-trained in operating as debt collectors. At first, just mentally, in how we view that offending person, but then eventually playing out in our actions toward that person. When we do this, when we hold a grudge, fixate on the offense, or choose not to forgive, whatever you want to call it, it's like we hold a person as a slave in our minds. It's literally like we're holding that person as slave to the debt, captive to that outstanding debt that needs to be paid off in order to satisfy Again, Joseph's brothers demonstrate this kind of mentality with their words in verse 18. They throw themselves down before Joseph and they cry out, Look, we are your slaves. We are your slaves. This is their offering now in order to rectify the wrong that took place between them. So in their actions and in their words, these brothers depict this financial view of offense and forgiveness. Forgiveness is the creative act of dealing with the debt. Forgiveness is about dealing with the debt. Even without the guilty party having settled up on their bill, when a person chooses to forgive, it is like paying the cost on their behalf. It is seeing that there is a cost that is due, and it is choosing to pay that cost on the person's behalf. So then, practically speaking, what does this look like? What exactly is happening when we deal with the debt? How do we pay this fare of forgiveness? There are three things I'd like to suggest to you, three costs that are involved as we engage in forgiveness. The first one is the cost of our pride. Any act of forgiveness is going to challenge us in the area of our pride. I want to promise you that. I want to warn you about that. But we all kind of know it. What I want to suggest to you is that the challenge to our pride begins before we even enter into the territory of forgiveness. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul describes the holy people loved by God, clothing themselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then he gives the command to forgive anyone who offends you. Colossians chapter 3. So there it is, the kind of character that's coupled with forgiveness. But I left something out of that passage. Something that comes prior to forgiveness. Does anyone know it? Did anyone catch it? Before Paul says, forgive anyone who offends you, he calls us to make allowance for each other's faults. 
Make allowance for each other's faults. Extending grace is not just responsive, it is also proactive. It gets ahead of the offense. Another word for this is forbearance. Forbearance comes before forgiveness. Author John H. Newfeld describes this prior act of grace as something that can save us from many situations that don't need to be escalated, that don't need to become this pattern, this cycle of hurt and forgiveness. Forbearance can actually cut off those situations from escalating. In our culture of offense, we tend to escalate people's actions that bother us into these kind of personal attacks, claiming our own injury and insisting on the other person's intention. But is this perception accurate? And is this perception helpful? Perhaps this needs to be re-examined. It may be that many situations that we think require forgiveness are actually situations that we are called to forbearance. Many of other people's actions we don't need to allow to affect our sense of the scales. We have a choice in the matter. We can develop better tolerance of the people around us who bother us to no end. Like, let's be honest about that. We bother each other, but we can become more tolerant of those things that bother us. We can develop more empathy to understand others' motivations and not just assume that it's ill intent. Or simply, we can practice taking a deep breath. All good things that have to do with forbearance. But then, of course... We know that there are situations that are clearly matters of forgiveness. Where injury in the victim is real. And even more, where intention in the offender is real. Such is the case when a mob of siblings plot against you, throw you down a well and abandon you to die before selling you into slavery. This is clearly not a matter of forbearance. This would qualify. And there would be many other things between that would qualify. But still, in situations beyond forbearance, if we are to engage in forgiveness, we will be challenged to pay the cost of our pride. Our hurt has a natural way of making us selfish of making our stories one-sided and turned inward. Again, focus solely on what I am due. We'll often describe all this as focusing on justice, and in some ways it is. But as you read through the Bible, you come to realize that God's version of justice is bigger than our own. God's justice draws us into a larger picture that is other-oriented and that is relationship-focused. God's justice always brings us back to that. The more we engage in forgiveness, 
the more our scope is expanded beyond just ourselves to see a broader picture, to see my offender and the relationship between us from a broader perspective. It doesn't make it go away, but it brings some new perspective. Forgiveness draws us into new perspective. And one thing that will often result from this broader perspective is that we will be brought to the realization that we too have contributed in some way to the conflict. Again, a challenge to our pride. No one is a pure, innocent victim in our mutual relationships, in our systems, in our cultures. I don't know of anyone who could be able to say, I am a pure and innocent victim. I have done nothing to contribute to the conflicts among us. In Joseph's case, this would be accurate. Yes, the brother's actions are inexcusable. And at the same time, Joseph played his part in the conflict drama. He himself was prideful and arrogant. Or at least he was socially dull to not understand how his actions would have effect on his brothers. When he shared his dreams of his brothers bowing down to him, what did he think that was going to accomplish? He perpetuated his father's favoritism and he gave them motive for their jealous aggression towards him. He played his part. So in all these ways, to engage in forgiveness will call us to pay the price of our pride. One author, Johann Christoph Arnold, describes it like this. He says, Forgiveness is a door to peace and happiness. But it is a small and narrow door, and it cannot be entered without stooping. Forgiveness requires humility. And as we step into forgiveness, it releases humility in our lives. The two are entirely tied together. The second cost that we will be required to pay if we want to engage in forgiveness is the cost of our passivity. Another common response when we have been hurt is to downplay to gloss over, and to cover up the crime. In a lot of situations, it feels easier to do that, and in many ways, it it is easier to do that. It might qualify as a kind of forgetting, but forgiveness is different. It does not excuse the hurtful behavior It does not pretend it didn't occur or that it hasn't bothered you. It deals with it head on. Forgiveness deals with things head on. It tells the truth. We are all prone in our own ways to running and hiding from and covering over conflict. Because deep down we know that these situations And these relationships are actually the very thing that define our lives. So we're rightfully scared of all this stuff. It's explosive. It has huge consequences. 
And so we resort to these kind of behaviors of being passive. We think that we will be safe by staying as far away from these situations as possible. Whether our own thoughts and memories or the actual people who have hurt us, we think we'll just run away from all that. I don't need any of that. I'm just going to run the opposite direction. And if, you, if you've only been doing that for a while, you might think that's working. But for some of the rest of us who have been trying that out over a longer period of time, you've maybe come to the point of realizing uh, maybe this isn't working. I want to ask, what direction are you running in? What direction are you running? Could it be that your path is not actually a line, but a circle? And that the more and the harder you run, you are only getting closer and closer to that thing you think you're running from. In the book of Genesis, the narrative seems to be more of a circle than a straight line. If you read the whole 50 chapters, you will see these family patterns and dynamics being repeated over and over and over again. It seems to be a cycle. So you probably think your efforts of evasion are successfully distancing yourself. But if the story you're living in is a cycle, you're actually being brought back around to face that same point of your journey not going away. In chapter 42, Joseph's brothers are forced to go to Egypt, the very place where Joseph now holds power. In verse 22, as their story catches up to them, Reuben, the youngest of the brothers, says, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. And now we have to answer for his blood. We have to answer for his blood. The NIV translates it this way, now we must give an accounting for his blood. But I think my favorite translation is the ESV, the English Standard Version. It says, now there comes a reckoning for his blood. That's the strongest language there, a reckoning. And this is the reality of these situations that we run from, is there comes a time where there is a reckoning and we cannot run anymore. And it's there, right in front of us. The reality has to be faced. One of my favorite music artists is this folk band, the Abbott Brothers. And they have very poignant lyrics. Uh, In a song called The Weight of Lies, they say this. The weight of lies will bring you down. And it will follow you to every town. Because nothing happens here that doesn't happen there. So when you run, make sure you run to something and not away from. Because lies don't need an aeroplane to chase you anywhere. The reckoning. At some point, our past catches up to us. Will we keep hiding from it? Or will we face it? In the case of Joseph, he had become estranged from his brothers for 20 years. And when they see each other again in chapter 45, the brothers don't recognize Joseph. And so he actually has the option to remain hidden, 
to remain passive and anonymous and not actually face this situation in his life. But finally, he chooses to reveal his true identity and he tells them, I am Joseph. They were talking all about this situation from the luxury of anonymity. And he, it's like he pulls back the mask and he says, I am Joseph. And they're confronted with this past situation. He shows his true face to his abusers. And in this sense, he faces his past. So forgiveness requires courage. And as we step into forgiveness, courage is released in our lives. And it brings us to the third cost that we will have to pay if we are to engage in forgiveness. And some of you already already guessed it, but all of us have felt it. It's the cost of pain. The cost of pain will have to be paid if anyone is to engage in this business of forgiveness. It will involve addressing the pain that exists in our lives, not lying to ourselves, not pretending to ourselves, but saying, actually, that did hurt me. Actually, time has not healed all wounds. It's still there. It's still a thing. See, the thing about forgiveness is that, yes, it is the gateway to healing and happiness. It's this amazing, transformative reality. But it's not automatic. You don't just push the button and get there. In order to walk towards that, it always takes us through pain. You don't get there without walking through your pain. The encouraging news for us is that we're not alone in that, but that God has actually transformed the very nature of pain. That pain does not have to be this isolating and overcoming experience in our lives, but that because of what God has done, pain now has been entirely transformed to become this kind of vehicle, this pathway to healing and happiness. Our God has transformed the nature of pain. God has gone down into the depths of pain, and he has placed his redeeming love there. So that every experience of pain could serve as a gateway to healing. I hesitate to say that God causes pain. That's, that's a big thing for us to discuss. And we'd need more time, but I, I just would like to suggest a measure of hesitation about God causing pain. But the consistent message through the Bible is that God uses the occurrence of pain as a portal to healing portal to redemption. This is what our God does. We heard this in the story of Joseph with the famine. God uses this hard circumstance of suffering to draw his beloved family back together again. He takes hold of it. He transforms this pain and suffering into new opportunity. And of course, we know that the ultimate expression of this is how God used the cross to achieve the same thing, this ultimate uh, experience 
of pain and suffering. And he takes that and he redeems it into the gateway of healing and hope. We see this again, that this forgiveness is not a cost that we can pay on our own, but it's actually something that God has done for us. As you look at this list of costs that will be required of you, I don't know how that hits you, but likely you look at that and you say, I don't know if I've got it. I don't know if I've got enough in my account to afford all of these costs. And I think that's the honest truth, is that when it comes to this miracle of forgiveness, none of us have it within ourselves to be able to achieve the forgiveness that we need. But this is the Christian hope, this is the Christian message, is that God has done it. God has opened up a new space of forgiveness in the world through Jesus' death on the cross. And so it's not about our own strength. It's not about our own ability or our own supply to pay off the debt anymore. But it's God saying, I have done it. I have settled the debt. You don't have to anymore. You don't have to go around constantly thinking about the debts between you. You don't have to go around constantly trying to collect those debts and actually enacting further harm and offense in this cycle of revenge. You don't have to keep doing that because I've settled it all. I've taken care of all of it at the cross and it's done. It's paid for. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says it this way. He says, We praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. God is so rich in mercy and forgiveness that he has done it. So it's no longer this old way of life of thinking about the debt, of thinking about the balanced scales. Instead, we have been presented with a new way to look at our world, to look at our relationships, to look at ourselves. It's a new image before us that we see everything through. And it's the image of the cross. We're now the arms of justice run through God himself. And he holds his arms out, showing us what this intersection of justice and mercy looks like. And that all of that is this forgiveness from, straight from God's heart. Pouring out over the whole world, pouring out for you and I. And within this scene, we can actually receive from it. We can actually step into it and say, this is where I belong. This is what I've been brought into. I can now see my life entirely differently not about debt anymore. I'm free. I'm free of all of that because of what God has done. And accordingly, I can also see my offender within that picture as well because that same love was given for them. So somehow, this is what Jesus is inviting us to, is to place our relationships, to place our hurt, our pain within that scene. And it will change the way we see our world, our enemy, 
ourselves. Forgiveness changes everything. This is what Jesus has done on our behalf, is he has paid the cost. He's paid the cost of pride. He could have clung to his divine privilege and said, I'm, I'm better than this messed up world. I don't need to go there. But no, pride was not for him. In Philippians 2, we read about how he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant to come among us. He paid the cost of passivity. He would not remain at a distance. He would not even say, okay, we just need to start over. This whole human project is a mess. It's a disaster. I'm sorry, we need to start again. No, he says, we're going back to redeem it. We're going back to face it. And of course, we know he paid the cost of pain, of laying down, of surrendering his very life, his blood poured out for us as he held his arms open on the cross. And he died so that debt would be no more. There is an entirely new way for us as we've been brought into this, our whole world, this applies to. So would we continue to live out of this space? Would we continue to live with this as the lens of how we see ourselves, our enemy, and our world? I'm going to invite the team to come now and to lead us in one final song where we reflect on this incredible grace that's been offered to us, the debt that has been completely addressed, and how we are free, we are made new, and actually able to carry that out in our world. Why don't we stand and we'll sing this final song.